Welcome to Head Change, the podcast that puts you in a better headspace. I'm your host, Levi Strong. On today's episode, I speak with Captain Cam, that's Cameron Hatton, co-founder of Fiddler's Greens, about being a mom-and-pop cannabis brand. You had mentioned making infused brownies and ice cream, and I know you've told me about this before, and my question is, when are you going to do that again? Because we need that. When I'm not working 60 to 80 hour weeks trying to survive the regulated cannabis market, and mm-hmm. I, this is the most, you know, everything that I've done in my life, I think no matter how hard, miserable, I mean, I've had some of the worst shit jobs imaginable in the world and some of the toughest environments to work in. And I think those were just precursors to get me ready for the, the, the dick punch that is cannabis. Yeah. It's, 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 it's why we have beyond. cannabis so that we can deal with all this. Well, we joke we couldn't do what we do without doing what we do. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you know, we, we come from this outlaw culture where we were always, you know, sneaking around and smoking and you'd always medicate in private somewhere where nobody knew. And then we got to this beautiful spot where we created our own universe where we could medicate openly and freely and, mm-hmm. and be out in the open. And now we're legal. Now we're permitted. Now we're in that space. And I can't even smoke in my own damn facility. Yeah. You can, you, you have to go and buy your own products, you know, from the yeah, dispensary. Yeah. I can't even take products out of it. And we have a space outside of our, our facility that we call international waters where that's a safe space we can go, but it's like, well, now I'm back hiding in, you know, in the bushes to smoke again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going on with my mic too. It's like every time I talk, I feel like there's a weird static energy. You know what? Sometimes when you're out at sea, shit gets gnarly and you just keep on sailing. So we're just going to keep well, going. Always. Yeah, that's that's the way it always is. And, you know, it's funny is all my years of, of uh, teaching sailing and running boats. The one thing I can guarantee is shit's going to break. Everything's going to go wrong. But if you know that's going to happen, you've already know, you know, hey, we're just going to take this step. We need to do this, you know, stop the water from coming in and start heading back. You know, all the little things that I I can't think of. Everything breaks all the time. And that is the cannabis industry. Everything's fucked up. Uh, The regulations are asinine. It's ran by people who are misinformed, disinformed and have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, we have a, a, a town nearby here who, uh, we were talking to the woman who wrote the cannabis regulations and they banned everything. And the only thing they wanted in their town was uh, uh, extracts and edibles. And their thought was that uh, nobody's gonna steal that and they didn't understand it. And so Shannon went in to talk to the lady who wrote all the regulations, explained who we were, explained that we grew CBD dominant cannabis, that we made tinctures that we infused whole flour into organic olive oil and that we were organic cultivators. We didn't use pesticides. You know, we were companion planting. We're developing biodiversity on our farm. And after Shannon explained everything to her, trying to find out why the regulations were so draconian. And uh, she says, well, I have two questions for you. First, what's CBD and what's a tincture? And we had to look at, you wrote the regulations. You wrote the cannabis regulations for your town and you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And that's what we come up against. And I've been the angry activist. I've been out there yelling. I've been out there screaming at people going, you don't know what you're talking about. And it, it wasn't always successful. And the majority of the time it wasn't. And that's when we had to become educators. We had to learn everything we could so that we could go meet these people on their own level and then give them good, solid, verifiable information that they could verify for themselves 
And that's kind of the genesis of High Tide Distro of how we became an education distribution company and how we became educators in the space. Because in order for us to keep doing what we do, we had to educate the people in our way to show them what we were trying to do because they were misinformed. 80 years of drug prohibition, 80 years of, of propaganda and lies and a drug war that has turned, I mean, you know, you, I, I grew up with Nancy Reagan and just say no and, you know, turn in your parents if they're doing bad things. You know, that's, yeah. as a kid, and that takes a lot to get over, uh, especially like dealing with my dad, you know, he's now 100% disabled uh, a Vietnam vet. I just had to go home and help him get his leg amputated above the knee, mm-hmm. um, uh, mid-thigh or during the middle of the pandemic. And the, the pills they were giving him were knocking him down and he couldn't think and they, they were making him incontinent. He was stuck in a hospital bed and just miserable and hurting and foggy and not knowing what was going on. And, and it was destroying him, but he still wouldn't touch cannabis because then the government was going to come take his guns and take his property. And he was terrified. And like I said, he was the chairman of the board of Washington State Optometry, and you know he's educated and has a medical background. And no matter the evidence I showed him, it was nope, that's a drug, it's wrong, can't do it. And that's a lot of what we come up against. And so we started seeking out all of the people that were the experts in the field. We started you know, Martin Lee at, at uh, Project CBD with Sarah Russo and and uh, uh, finding uh, Dr. Uh, Ethan Russo, her father, who is one of the top researchers in the country, and Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, and Dr. Dustin Sulek, and Dr. Christina Sanchez, and then everybody knows, you know, Dr. Uh, Rafael Mashulam and Didi Miri, and all these people. We had to physically go to their lectures and their seminars and their classes to learn directly from them what was happening in cannabis research, what the real information was. And then we took that information back with us and we went and we shared it at dispensaries, at veterans groups, elder care, nursing homes, at uh, any place that people would listen to us or where we ran into an issue in trying to forward cannabis in our community, we offered free cannabis education classes and we would sit down and talk to people and find the level of their understanding and knowledge and then give them the next few steps of it and say, well, try not to overwhelm them. Try not to browbeat them with, you know, no, you're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about, but here is the research. Here is the evidence. When they say, well, there's just not enough studies on it. I'm like, well, have you ever heard of William O'Shaughnessy? Have you heard about the hemp report that was done in the 1800s by Britain? Read that report showing how it's wonderful, it's efficacious, there's no long-term harm, nobody's ever been killed by it. And then you take that and then you go to the LaGuardia report that happened right after you know, the, the, the Tax Stamp Act, which basically made uh, cannabis and hemp illegal in the United States. Uh, LaGuardia did a report which verified and backed up the hemp report for the British hemp report. And then you fast forward all of that through prohibition uh, and you get to the actual start of the war on drugs officially titled under Nixon. And he commissioned the Schaefer report, which was doctors and researchers and everybody in there to, to do it. And when that came back, it verified the LaGuardia report. It verified the hemp act, uh, the hemp research act, um, Indian hemp act uh, um, from the 1800s. And they're all saying, this is a beneficial plant. This helps people. It makes lives better. And even people who abuse it, it really causes them no harm. And they're still functioning people in society. But people keep throwing this research away and burying it. In fact, Nixon had every copy of the Schaefer Report destroyed so that he can go on. And then uh, Ehrlichman, who was part of the Nixon uh, campaign and, and then later administration, he was uh, quoted in 1995 
in a Harper's Magazine article, um, when they asked him about the war on drugs and Nixon's uh, attitude towards cannabis. And he said, listen, in the Nixon campaign in 68 and the Nixon administration after that, the two biggest hurdles they had to achieving their goals was the anti-war movement and the black community. And they couldn't make it illegal to be anti-war and they couldn't make it illegal to be black. But what they could do is vilify behaviors within those communities and make those illegal so they could arrest them and destroy their families and break up their communities and break up their groups and scatter them to the winds. And that's what the war was about. And then he was quoted saying, did we know that this was, the drugs weren't bad and this wasn't about the drugs? Of course we did. And so when we go to these people that are anti-cannabis who say, listen, there is no medical or logical reason why this plant was ostracized and banned and burned and, and everybody around it was arrested, shot and scattered to the wind. Um, there, uh, we, we gotta show that the basis of this was wrong. And so from the failed logic at the beginning of this, it means why is this a schedule one drug now? And we still have people saying that there's no research to show that it's okay. Like just Google cannabis research. And there's thousands upon thousands of reports, but the it's federal laziness. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. You know, uh, the, any cannabis research done in the United States has to be done with uh, cannabis use, uh, grown by the Mississippi University, and it's horrible garbage. Uh, it's less than five percent THC. It's moldy. It's rotty. It's got seeds in it. They grind it up to where it's dust. They don't want to prove the effectiveness of cannabis. In fact, the NIDA is responsible for approving all cannabis research in the United States. And their mandate from Congress is to show the deleterious or the harmful effects of cannabis. So they won't even approve any research that shows this is what cannabis is good for. And great, it's great that we have people like uh, Dr. Ethan Russo on this case, because he's figured out how to write a study saying, hey, we're going to do a study on cannabis showing, oh, it's bad for this, it's bad for this, it's bad for this. But on the flip side, that same study is going to show that it's also a benefit here, and it's great for society there, and for this condition, and we know that it does this, this, and this. And it's just, it's taking this slow battle of attrition, giving people facts. And then when we come teach these classes and we talk about cannabis to people, we don't walk in saying, hey, listen to us, we're experts, cannabis fixes everything. Like, no, these are the facts. This is what actually happens in your body. This is how this is. And here's the research report I got this information from. Here's the doctor that I learned this from. Here's the report that this is from. And we make sure all of our sources are open and shareable and we give them freely away. And that's one of the things I love about the cannabis industry is it's very inclusive. It's very arms open. It's very welcoming and sharing and loving if you're about the plant. But there's a lot of people that come in with bad intentions or they see this as a green rush and that we just throw out seeds and rake in money that, uh, you know, that's not what this is about. You know, that's going to happen in any industry. But the majority of people who, especially those of us who have survived this long into the cannabis industry, we're not making money. We're not rich. You know, that's not here. We're here because we love the plant. We love what it can do. And we're here because of passion. And that's what all of us are. You're the same way. I and mean, we're both in the same boat. We love whole plant medicine. We love talking to the patients. We love trying to do it better and grow uh, higher quality with less impact on the soil. We're actually, we're improving soil. Where we grow cannabis, we leave it better than we found it. I've had to start three outdoor farms to match regulations in Sonoma County. I've been zoned out twice. Um, and every time we leave a farm, we leave it better than we found it. Yep, the regenerative farming <clears throat> that is going on with hemp 
right now on the national scale and that's been going on in California and the Emerald Triangle is extremely progressive. I don't think people really realize the big scope of agriculture in America. You know, everything used to be organic, right? A long time ago. I think the first synthetic mm -hmm. fertilizer was invented in the late 1800s, but these synthetics yeah. weren't really used. In synthetic fertilizers, they can crystallize and harden the soil, but it, it's really the sprays that are being used, the herbicides, the pesticides that are being that are food yeah. that you buy in the grocery store is is probably laden with it. And if you lab tested an orange, you know, a non-organic orange at the grocery store, I doubt it would pass California's pesticide no. requirements. Uh, in fact, a lot of the things we do a lot of manufacturing work with a lot of other people who manufacture their own products. And the cat three testing we do in California is more stringent than any organic product on the store. In fact, we're seeing a lot of organic products being made in the cannabis space, failing lab testing because they're organic flavorings. Oranges are one of the worst. I've right. seen so many people fail California lab testing because their organic oranges have too many pesticides in them. Right. Yeah, it, it's, it's, I think people would be shocked. I think, um, I think a lot of people operate under the false assumption that the FDA like regulates everything. I've talked to a lot of bud tenders about this in the past and um, people have said, oh yeah, you know, I mean, food at the grocery store is regulated by the FDA. It's all lab tested. And it's like, no, <laughs> no, it's definitely not. Cannabis is being held to the most strict agricultural standard of any crop that's ever been produced in the history of the world mm -hmm. i mean as a farm you're and you guys at fiddler's greens are you've been vertical um so you've been cultivators as well as manufacturers and distributors so you kind of know the full scope of this business i guess the only thing you haven't been is a retailer um, for god. cannabis thank god yeah <laughs> But you know the challenges that, that farmers are up against and also the challenges that, that people are up against. And you brought up a lot. And we need to have like 20 more podcasts with you because the history of the legality of cannabis is a really important piece of head change and what I want to talk about. Because th this is, I believe that cannabis right now in the United States is the most important issue in the world. And, 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 and on a couple different fronts, but one is on the criminal justice front. We need to decriminalize cannabis today so that people stop going to jail for smoking a joint like you and I are doing. And so that people can have their, their records expunged and they can get back in and they can get their life back on track. You shouldn't have your entire life derailed because you got caught with a little bit of pot. It, it's it's absurd. You can't get a college loan. You can't go to school if you have a, a cannabis conviction. That, so it's, that needs to change today. And the other reason why I think this is the most important issue that anyone can be talking about is the full federal legalization of cannabis is, is access to medicine for people who need it. And yes. that includes, you know, we all need this plant I, I, for sure. But I'm really thinking of little kids that have, you know, epilepsy and, 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 and have these rare, rare seizures that the only thing that's working for them is CBD and they can't get it. Now we have GW Pharma with some products now out there with Epidiolex, but that took a long time for even that to get through the FDA trials and people need access to their medicine and also vets, which is one of the things I want to talk to you. And, you know, as a former Marine, and I'd like to hear more about your dad, is your dad using cannabis? Do you give him cannabis products? What I, I do. He has an entire menu of all of our tinctures and topicals and things on the side. Um, like I was saying, I had to go help him uh, have his leg amputated this year. And uh, he has previously had a stroke and a heart attack, which both things we know that uh, you know, phytocannabinoids 
help. They rebuild neural connections. They, they help the body balance itself. It brings the body into homeostasis. And he has been on opioids for so long for his injuries from Vietnam and uh, 30 years of standing on a concrete floor seeing patients you know, in his eye clinic. Um, his body is pretty battered and bruised. And when I saw him, it, it, was, it hurt so much to see him in that condition. Um, you know, stuck in a hospital bed and not able to move and just out of it from all the opioids he was taking just to not be in pain. And he self-medicated my entire life. You know, he's always had to self-medicate just to function. Didn't and so it was amazing that I, I went up to be with him. And while I was there, um, he couldn't sleep and he, he was almost in tears. And I gave him um, some of our OG Rogue, which is OG flour, it's a high THC and infused into the olive oil. And I gave him, um, a, a, you know, maybe 10 milligrams before bed. He was saying, can't sleep. And every night he can't sleep, it gets worse. And so I finally, after a couple of drinks, admittedly, I got him to take, uh, you know, maybe 10 milligrams. An hour later, he goes, I'm not feeling anything. Give me more of that. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I gave him another 20 milligrams. And I'm like, he's either going to have a bad time or this is really going to help. And I was prepared to sit with him and, you know, cause I've over medicated so many times and, you know, the good and the bad of it is it makes you really introspective. It makes you look at your life and go, Hey, I've been kind of a dick. I need to kind of adjust what I've been doing over. Yeah, cannabis. Life gets shoved right up into yeah. your face. <laughs> cannabis teaches you lessons. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I gave him another 30 milligrams. And so he probably had 40 milligrams total of whole flower cannabis, but uh, he slept and he slept well. And the next day I've, his eyes were brighter. He was more coherent. He was there with us and present um, and he felt good. And so we did that for a couple of days, but then after he started feeling better, he's like, oh, I don't need this anymore. And he walked away from it. So it's going to be one of those to keep going. And, you know, and he's always afraid that the government's going to come and take his guns and, right. and arrest everybody. Um, well, not and the children and um, epilepsy and things like that. That's actually where we're getting a lot of the good data and research right now, because we have groups like Whole Plant Access for Autism on Facebook, uh, and that's Jenny Mai. And uh, oh my goodness, she's going to kill me. I forgot her name. Um, but uh, these two ladies are both parents of special needs children, and they've started the support group where they are trying everything real time. And they're taking notes and logs and they're showing, hey, CBDA works great for this type of epilepsy. But if you give it to a child with this type of epilepsy, they're going to have cluster seizures. And then for these kids over here, you need these amount of terpenes. But if you give them a low dose of CBD along with pinene or lemonine, they're going to be, you know, a hyperactive Tasmanian devil on your hands. But if you give them more little lul and you give them CBG with CBD on a higher dose, then you're not going to have the stimming. You're not going to have the seizures. And so we're really looking to these parents and these uh, mothers and these groups that are doing the real-time research so we can take that data and share it because we're not getting the real research we need done by our government. You're right. And it's kind of the wedge. It's like the foot in the door because no one can argue with helping little kids, you know, and, and people shouldn't argue babies with and puppies, you know, Jody, that's Jody star everywhere he goes. We're saving babies and puppies. Do you yep. hate babies and puppies? Right. And, and it's true. And, you know, a lot of people can argue, a lot of people think, well, we don't, you know, I, I want to unpack a couple of things. Cause one of the things that, that I think is, is happening is, you know, vets are federal employees. So there's a lot of worry about cannabis, which is federally mm -hmm. illegal and getting access to this. So instead they go down what is legal to them, which is prescription drugs, opiates that are very harmful, very addictive mm -hmm. and alcohol. 
And alcohol and painkillers, when combined, are lethal. Um, We have a tremendous amount of overdoses in this country from that combination and from opiates. So we're forcing a very at-risk population with with, um, former vets into legal channels that are far more harmful. And then if they do want to access safe whole plant medicine, they have to pursue illicit channels. Um, so it's something that we really need to pay attention to. But yeah, thank God for and the research that's coming out. And their pensions and their benefits right. and everything if they're caught. Right. No, it, it, the odds, you know, the odds are stacked against cannabis. And, and why? That's one of the big questions that I want an answer to is why in 2021 is cannabis still illegal? You know, I was reading some stats, 83% of vets want legalized cannabis. A majority of Republicans now, 51% of Republicans want to legalize cannabis. We all know us hippies want it legalized. Mm -hmm. So what are we waiting for? What's the holdup? Is it, this is going to drag on for another 40 years? Is that what we're up against? Why? I know this is a huge nut to crack, but it, do you think it's profit motive? You know, cannabis has been in the U.S. pharmacopoeia, you know, from the mid 1800s on and for uh, almost uh, 75 years, cannabis was in the majority of all medications that you can get from a pharmacy. Uh, If you go back and look at it, it was one of the uh, primary sources in the American pharmacopoeia uh, as as an anti-inflammatory, as a pain reliever, as a calming agent. It's in every type of uh, patent medicine that was ever used. And what we see started happening and where it came from was uh, there's a guy named uh, Anslinger, and he was a treasury agent and he was part of the prohibition agents. And so when prohibition was ending, his department was getting cut and they were all going to be turned loose. And so all of these law enforcement agents who are corrupt to begin with under prohibition uh, were going to lose their jobs and they had to find something else to, to rally around. And Anslinger decided that cannabis was the thing. And he actually has uh, quotes of him before he started the war on cannabis saying that, oh, it's poppycock, it doesn't cause, everybody says that it riles people up and it gets them angry and it's bad. And he said, I don't see that from this plant. And then once he realized he can weaponize cannabis in order to keep his job and to start enforcing what he sees as um, social correctness, he was very, had a, uh, he was very racist, uh, especially against uh, uh, the black jazz musicians at the time. And there's a great book out there by Johan Hari called Chasing the Scream. And I, I believe they may even made a movie about it with uh, uh, talking about Billie Holiday. Um, but when he first started going after this, we also had, um, oh, you're gonna have to edit this part, I'm getting a little brain farty. <laughs> <laughs> this is the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so the Marijuana Tax Act. So that that was kind of like the first big piece of legislation that put a really heavy tax burden on cannabis. Before the Tax Act in 37, you could actually get a medical prescription for marijuana from from my understanding of history. And it's, I'm, I don't I'm, even think you needed it. It was, it was called hemp then. It was never called marijuana until Anslinger made and, it that. Marijuana and they spelled it Mar- M-A-R-I-H. Yes, well, and marijuana had nothing ever to do with cannabis, even in uh, the, the Mexican vernacular. It's always been cannabis or hemp or Indian hemp. And that's how they got the bill passed to outlaw it, is because if they would have said we're going to outlaw hemp, there wouldn't have been anybody in the government that would have voted for it because it was one of the prime products. In right. fact, on the old $20 bills, they were made out of hemp with a picture of a farm 
farmer uh, uh, harvesting hemp. And to be a colonist in the United States in the 1600s, you were mandated as a landowner to grow X amount of hemp for the crown uh, for your taxes. Hemp was used as a currency and it's been grown all the way through. But when well, Anthony got going on it, then he started going with all the yellow journalism and uh, they started, um, God, I'm just having a brain fart moment morning this morning. What was the uh, the uh, newspaper magnet back east? Hearst, William, William Randolph Hearst. Yeah, William Randolph Hearst. Well, he owned all these newspapers and he had large tracts of forest to harvest and to log to create the paper for it. And at this time, the decorticator was coming about, which was making the processing of hemp for cord fiber much easier and faster. So it threatened his paper mills. And at the same time, DuPont was coming out with nylon, which was going to replace rope. And so they started this smear campaign. And that's where you start seeing reefer madness. That's where you start seeing the articles. Uh, one of the first ones to come out was about this Mexican family in Texas that was uh, poor. And so they started eating the local weeds in their backyard. And now the whole family is clinically insane. And, you know, you hear the old newsreels with this and from the loco weed uh, marijuana. And if people would have said, hey, this is hemp, they would have known it was bullshit. Um, but that's where it started, and it was Anslinger and DuPont and Hearst, and then also starting to get into, that's when we started having the, the, uh, the outlawed cannabis, and by 1940, they had it completely removed from the uh, pharmacopoeia uh, for the United States, and then they needed a resurgence of it during World War II, so there's a, a film that came out, a wartime film called Hemp for Victory, where they came out and talked about getting your permit to go hemp because the Navy needs lines for the ships and sails and bags and canvas. We need all of this. And then as soon as that was over, they actually destroyed every copy of, of uh, Hemp for Victory to cover up that they needed to legalize marijuana to win the war effort. Well, and and you're, so a, you're a sailor. I mean, yeah. hemp, hemp is still used, hemp fiber for rope. Um, it's the best. It, it reduces salt water wear. In fact, I think it's the USS Constellation back east. It still has its uh, rigging and sails made from hemp. And the term uh, canvas was actually a derivation of the term cannabis. Uh, hemp has been used. It's, it's wonderful for caulking the ships. The, the lines don't corrode in the salt water. Uh, in fact, I have spools, I have spools of, of hemp twine right here that I use for lashings. I, when I was uh, on my boat, uh, Kindred Spirit, uh, I did all of my mousing and my wrapping from my anchor chain to my road is all hemp. Yeah, I mean, this is what's really crazy. And like, I, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but this is a conspiracy that industrial hemp, okay, hemp mm -hmm. that's grown for fiber that doesn't even produce any psychoactive cannabinoids at all is illegal or was up until 2018. I mean, mm -hmm. 2018, the US Farm Bill finally legalized industrial hemp that's cannabis with less than 0.3 percent thc which the fact was written by a canadian botanist that right. has nothing to do with the delineation of of any form of cannabis that 0.3 percent means nothing it has no bearing on anything so basically what the farm bill did was make thc illegal so right exactly exactly and before so the 1937 tax act there was there was kind of this coalition of forces on the one hand you had hearst and his paper mills and his paper production he and hemp was a major threat to paper mill production because it's you can hemp is the fastest growing plant on land trees take forever to grow it's obviously a much better choice for paper material for paper pulp 
So Hemp had a lot of money and used the reefer madness, kind of used the power of his media empire to demonize cannabis in very racial tones. That has carried on. So has the legalization of industrial hemp. And a friend of mine recently put it this way. He said, isn't it kind of funny that now we're legalizing hemp right when basically everything's digitized. I mean, the paper industry is pretty much done. You know, the, I mean, there's very, you know, the government probably still prints oh, out more paper than anybody, but I think there's something to that. I think there's literally something to the fact that the powers that be finally said, well, profits on paper are now so low that it's not really a concern. Let's go ahead and legalize industrial mm -hmm. hemp. And we'll probably wait for big pharma to finally have all of the research and patents on cannabinoids, which they're doing as fast as they can. Oh, the government always ha already has patents on cannabinoids as antioxidants. As soon as they know that they can make sure that they can funnel any of the money that comes out of this industry into their hands, they'll legalize cannabis. And this is the big fight of our times. I mean, you're a mom and pop cannabis brand like me. And California is making it really difficult to be a mom and pop business in this state. You almost have to have millions of dollars of funding, hundreds of millions of dollars of funding to really compete. And that's what they want because then they can funnel it into the correct channels. Um, yep. They can, they can, they don't want people to know that they can grow a plant in their backyard that can probably replace nine out of their 10 medications, you mm -hmm. know, if not all but of them. That's an important thing that we feel should be in any decriminalization or legalization bill is personal growth. Everybody should be able to grow their own plants. It should be ubiquitous. And we hear about, oh, that it's going to be crime. There's going to be crime around grows. And around here, I have neighbors that have signs up on their fence that says, no commercial pot in my neighborhood, where my farm is biodiverse, and no pesticides. And I look over at their grapevines or whatever they're doing. And there we have people out there spraying and tilling and tearing up the soil. Um, I think everybody should grow this. That way, it's Who's going to steal it when everybody can grow it? Yeah, it'll, it'll reduce a lot of the crime in it. Absolutely. And, and there's still that stigma against this plan. I mean, Jeff Sessions, the former attorney general, said not that long ago that only mm -hmm. bad people smoke marijuana. Oh, yep. And a lot of people, unfortunately, still believe that. And I think, I think, there, I think the Christian community is still really grappling with this. I know there's Which a lot great of... because the cannabis is in the Bible. Right. There's a mistranslation in the Septuagint from the Greek where calamus and cannabosin, where the cannabis was used in the holy anointing oil. The tabernacles of the rabbis, they were burning cannabis uh, uh, flower and seeds as their incense. Um, it's, it's all throughout there. And then what is it? Genesis 1, And God said, I give to you all seed bearing plants. Yeah, I love going. My dad was very religious. And so I used a lot of that to be able to say, look, it's been around. It's not a new thing it's not scary it's not and and i think when when you provide people with good information you know when, when you when you talk about the studies from from real doctors and real researchers that show how beneficial this plan is and and how it virtually has little to no toxicity um, it starts to change people's minds but it really is like a battle for hearts and minds because of the amount of propaganda and the decades of demonizing, um, you know, this plant for personal use or for industrial purposes. And that's what's still just mind boggling to me is that, you, you know, like Kentucky now, right? Talk about flipping a switch. You got Mitch McConnell in the Senate. His state of Kentucky used to be the largest grower of hemp back in the day. Well, they want to be again. They want to grow. They want to grow a lot of industrial hemp, and they want to grow a lot of hemp flour that can be processed into CBD oil, because it's lucrative. You know, and money talks. And, and eventually, the money 
is going to, I think, overwhelm the business community and people, you know, the green rush has already happened and we've kind of seen the first wave or two of that in California, but there will be more once the federal legalization is imminent. Once it's like, all right, this is happening in the next year or two. And I don't think we're there yet. Um, we're going to see another green rush, a bigger one. And now we have Canada and Mexico legalized on both our North and South border, which is going to make things very interesting mm -hmm. with import and export. It's just coming to the point where we have to change the federal laws. The people don't want it this way. The business community largely doesn't want it this way, but there's still, I don't think people fully appreciate the power of the propaganda campaign against this plan, how successful mm -hmm. it was. I mean, if you want to look at how to wage a successful marketing campaign, look at how the government, has, at least a negative marketing campaign, look at how the government has demonized marijuana. They did a great job of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, they put their best and brightest minds on that job to make marijuana public enemy number one, to make people question its scientific validity. And you still hear this bullshit all the time. Andrew Cuomo just said marijuana is a gateway drug like two years ago. Okay. okay. These guys should know better. It's a gateway out of drugs. To get way out of drugs, exactly. It's, well, it's... And they've also found, you know, these guys, when they did the Just Say No campaign, they have statistically shown that in uh, communities where they had uh, Just Say No programs, they have a higher drug use out of that. It just, I, I believe it, it. It soured people. It showed people the government lies. It, it, this is blatant mm -hmm. out in the open. Everybody knows somebody who smoked pot and nobody's ever died from it. Nobody jumps off a building. Nobody does these horrific things that the war on drugs says. Yep. And, um, I think yeah. you know, New York just legalized and you know they made it so where you can smoke cannabis publicly wherever you smoke a cigarette. That's going to be a game changer because you know all of the millions of people in New York, they can't grow enough in New York for New York. So this is going to be, you know, hopefully the impetus to interstate commerce. Oh Once God, we get please. interstate commerce, it's going to be, let's keep Idaho out of this. And God bless Idaho. You know, I grew up up there. I went to the University of Idaho. I, I have a lot of family in Idaho. But man, so, you know, the one thing they are doing is they're making dispensary owners in Oregon and Washington rich. You know, they've, they've got that prohibition in Idaho. And then right across the border, you've got dispensaries. And those are the highest selling dispensaries in those states. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, people are coming across the board, kind of like how you used to go to Canada, you know, to drink yeah. uh, when you were underage because of the, the drinking laws. <laughs> uh, allegedly. So you, I was looking at your Instagram and you've recently started selling flour because I know like me, you've really been dedicated to tinctures and a variety of the minor cannabinoids like THCA and CBDA. But you've recently started selling your Captain Stash flour, which is, yes. I think, really cool. What made you decide to start selling uh, flour? Well, we started with flour and we've always done flour. And then when we got into making tinctures and the medicinal side and the healing balm, it took up so much of our effort and we turned our entire cultivation space over to those strains. And we wanted to grow consistent strain specific flowers. And once you develop something like that and you have medicinal patients, uh, you need to keep reliability and consistency. So we can't go sourcing clones and things like that from different places because they might have a different cannabinoid or terpene profile. And we have people that depend on what we're putting out. Um, but what we started doing is, is we've, over the years, because we couldn't find a distribution or anybody to represent Fiddler's Greens, and what we did, we had to go out on the road and do it ourselves. Like, you know, we live on the road, knocking on doors, talking to purchasers, talking to patients. Um, and we were out on the road doing this and knocking on, you know, thousands. I've been in over a thousand dispensaries in the last 10 years. And we found that we couldn't find anybody to represent us the way we needed to be represented. So we went back to doing it ourselves. 
and we develop relationships with the stores. We develop relationships with the bud tenders. We offer free cannabis education on dosing and cannabinoids and how to choose the right product, not just, hey, buy fiddlers, we're the best. We say, this is the way we find a product for ourselves. This is how you should find a product for you. And in developing those relationships, um, we started talking to all our fellow community members and they were finding they had the same problem being small batch craft farmers um, or people that didn't have large funding. For them, their only option was to sell their flour at a discount to somebody who's just going to blow it into oil, or it's going to be white labeled into somebody else's thing that nobody knows who the farmer is or the appellation. And so as a continuation of what we're doing with uh, our CBD and Fiddler's Greens, we started rallying these small family farms saying, we know you don't have a budget to brand your own flour and buy packaging and have your own distribution team and your own sales team to get out there. But what we can do is we can take the Fiddler's brand and we could say, we want to have the Fiddler's family of farms. We want to find the people that are doing it the right way, that care about the plant, that are part of the community, want to give back to the community. And we want to make sure that they're front and center and represented all the way to the end consumer. So we are taking some of the best flour we can find that small batch, craft, organic, sun-grown, grown by beautiful families here in Northern California. And we want to make sure that there's a clear channel for them to get to the consumers and that the consumers can go oh you work with soul spirit farms and walter and judy up in trinity county 20-year regenerative soil uh, everything is solar and wind driven and they, they uh, raise their own food and they do glamping on their site you know we want that to come through other than somebody saying oh it's a bag of weed i want the indoor that's 22 percent instead of the outdoor that's 19 percent you know and so that's the that's how we started the captain stash uh, doing the flower and you know we're all smokers too. And you know every time we see each other, we all pull out the jars of what we have or what we've been given, and we all share. And it feels like we're doing that down the road. And we also think that now, as things are starting to go more legal nationwide, that you know indoor is wonderful. I love indoor. There's good stuff, but there's no terroir. There's no appellation. The same indoor that you can grow in the desert here, you can grow in Oklahoma. You can grow in New York. You're not going to see any variation in indoor. Everybody's going to be buying the same lights, using the same systems to feed, um, and they're going to be doing the same turn. But when you grow like uh, David Drips' Thunder Wookie or his Strawberry Banana or one of these great cultivars here in the Petaluma Wind Gap, you can taste the difference of that flower growing in the sun and the soil and having, you know, everything. The cannabinoids and terpenes are responses and defense systems for the plant. So when the plant is predated on by insects or deer or the wind blows or the soil, you know, how is your, your, your mycorrhiza and your soil biome, how is that living? That's going to affect the flavor and the taste. And you're going to find unique strains that excel really well in unique terroir. And we want to make sure that that gets saved, preserved, and moved through uh, so everybody can see where that comes from. Like here, our, our ACDC that we grow for our tincture, um, if you grow it indoors, it's like an octopus on quaaludes. It just lays there. You have to trellis it up. It doesn't want to do anything. And it, it, you would think it's a really weak genetic. But you put it out here in this hard clay soil with these heavy, hot, windy days and these cold, foggy nights. And she stands up like she's a rock star. She's out there just huge. And she has an, our, our cannabinoid profile, the CBD level, and it's been going up every year that we've been growing here. I think and we want to make sure that, that kind of flower gets represented to the market because when we walk into a dispensary, the first thing a purchasing manager says is, I don't buy anything under 20%. Like, right. Which is well, you obviously don't understand cannabis. Yeah. Now, a lot of it, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's just what customers want, but the buyer is acting as a middleman and they're 
buyers typically are heavy smokers and heavy THC consumers. So their tolerance is so high. Uneducated. And uneducated. All of us, you, know, yeah. you know, all of us, you, me and Jody, we're all heavy smokers. We can smoke all day, every day. We can do dabs. We can smoke hash, whatever we want. But our favorite strain here is, is uh, forbidden fruit. It's 13 to 15% right. THC, but it's yeah. got this broad terpene profile. That's that's what makes everything. You know, THC sure. is THC no, is it, THC. It's like coming. It's like being a teenager, you know, and you go to the liquor store and you want Everclear because yeah. it's got the most alcohol, you know. And mm-hmm. it's like I want to get effed up, and that's what it's all about. Smoking weed can be about that. It's, that's oh, fine, yeah, but you can also kind of have a more adult experience and enjoy the subtler effects. And and people also don't understand that just because the THC is lower, it doesn't mean you're going to get less high. It really depends on the terpene profile. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I went up for harvest up to Mendo and tried probably 19 different strains, many of them testing into the mid 30s, 34% THC strains. Mm-hmm. And those were fine. You know, I enjoyed them, but my favorite one one was one that was 14% THC, literally, it, because it was just such an enjoyable smoke. And it, I didn't get paranoid. It was just a nice high. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of people out there that have probably tried cannabis and are afraid to try it again, because it's too strong. And they need to try some of these um, lower THC. I think there's a huge future for lower to lower THC okay. varietals that the current dispensary model is not doing a good job of representing. We need, we need like a farmer's market model where mm-hmm. the growers can go direct to the customer and say, Absolutely. here's my jars of all my different strains with the test results right in front of them. They can try a little bit, you know, they can walk around, you know, like you walk around a farmer's market now and you can try a little sample of the green juice smoothie and you go and try this guy's plum and you walk around the market and you try everybody's stuff and then you go and buy what you liked. Well, what that's what we need in the cannabis space. The dispensary mm-hmm. model is not serving the community or the grower, especially at all. That's, the, what, it, that's what I feel like we're doing for people is we're going out and finding these farms. We're going out and meeting these people and finding these amazing cultivars. And then we're curating them and bringing them into people. And hopefully, you know, I won't have to do that for people that they'll be able to go to the farm. Well, now you can go to Walter and Judy's farm and camp there. Um, nice. But traditionally, cannabis wasn't this high THC. It was more of a balanced one-to-one ratio. In fact, if you look mm-hmm. at DA, DEA reporting up through the mid-90s, the average THC content of flour that was confiscated or seized was uh, less than 5%, mm-hmm. 5% THC in there. And it's interesting that when cannabis went into prohibition and they started sending helicopters and the military out here uh, with the camp raids, that it wasn't safe to grow cannabis naturally outdoors anymore the way that it has throughout all of human history. So they said, we're tired of getting shot in the face. Let's move this indoors. And so cannabis got switched indoors. And I liken it to the bootlegging movement of prohibition, because when prohibition happened, it didn't make sense to brew beer. It didn't make sense to to make wine because it was such large quantities of low alcohol percentage. It didn't make sense to ship that much. It was too dangerous. So they started making moonshine and bootleg liquor that was highly concentrated, highly potent that they could hide and smuggle easily. I see that as the same way with cannabis being grown indoors. People started trying to get the more bang for their buck and make it easier to send, you know, a hundred pack, you know, somewhere else. Yeah. Allegedly. Yeah. And, no, you... uh, they started bringing the CBD out and the THC up, even if they didn't know that's specifically what they were doing, they were trying to find that more potent flower. And now I think we're coming back to balance and everything. Cannabis is brings our body into homeostasis and balance. We need to bring cannabis back to homeostasis right. and balance. Right. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, right now it's, I'm, I'm thankful that hemp 
is legal and you can sell these CBD rich varieties. But the ones I really am interested in are, are the like one-to-one ratio strains, you know, 5% each, seven, 8% each. The people that have never smoked a one-to-one, you got to try pre-rolls from four years ago. You've smoked lots of these. This is a one-to-one strain. And four years ago, we were putting the terpene profiles on this. Yep. You know, because this is what we love to smoke. And you're absolutely right. It's going to come back. Well, and, and when we open it up and allow everybody to do it, you're going to have those people growing the high fuel jet gas going full speed out there. And then you're going to have the people that are growing the nice little larfy outdoor stuff that, you know, is a delicate little smoke and maybe not intoxicating. But we're going to fill the entire spectrum of cannabis products. And there's going to be a market for all of it. There's going to be a need for all of it. We just, we, for one time for the conservatives to not be for free market, they need to be for this free market. It's right. going to open so many jobs, allow everybody to grow. It's going to change the face of communities, especially if we start growing food as part of our biodiversity in our cannabis. You know, I see the cannabis cultivation as a way to change the face of our communities, to make them more functional in smaller groups. We don't need to be shipping our food across the country. We don't need to be, you know, having centralized processing centers. You know, if we brought all of those things back to the community, the jobs would be in the community, the cultivation would be in the community, and any excess could be shipped off. But I think cannabis and the cultivation is going to change the way uh, we view how we're going to function in society. I think, I think you're right. I think, I think cannabis is, is, once we kind of can, as a society, work through this and get this right, I think it's going to lead to a lot of other things. It is going to lead to a, you know, an agricultural renaissance. America used to be a huge agricultural power. We still mm-hmm. are, but we've mostly become, well, we shifted to a manufacturing power. And now we're really just like a data power. You know, we, we collect the world's data, basically, and we spy on everybody. Centuries. Right. And, and right. That, the, the model we're living under is not sustainable. And I think cannabis is something that as a really divided country, we can actually agree on. Because mm-hmm. even if you don't like to get high yourself or aren't into it, you can't argue with the job creation, the revenue growth. Personal and then choice, sure, personal freedom, personal, personal responsibility. Choice. I'm an adult. And if I want to use a product that is mind altering, I have the right to. It mm-hmm. shouldn't prevent me from owning a firearm or violate my constitutional rights. I shouldn't have to pee into a cup to get a job um, because I, I choose as an adult to use a mind altering substance that I enjoy that has medical benefits. You know, we're still living under this repressive prohibition mentality that I think once we're actually released from, it's like, for anybody, and this is probably a stupid example, but I can't help but think of it. If you've never been to New Orleans and then you go to New Orleans for the first time and you're like, I can smoke in the bars and I can just take my drink to go and walk down the street to the next bar. And it's like, why isn't it like this everywhere? This is so fun. You know, like, why are we being treated like kindergartners as grown adults that are driving cars, that are flying airplanes, that are owning firearms? Why can't we have the right to use plants and substances the way that we choose? I mean, I'm all for legalizing all drugs, personally. I'm a complete libertarian on this. Um, Dr. Carl Hart has some great information on that. And also, I can't recommend Chasing the Scream by Johan Ari enough. Yeah, I wrote that that as well. I wrote that down. I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, I, I feel like I know... Let's see. I know we've probably gone over a little bit, um, but this is all such good stuff. And I didn't really get a chance to talk to you enough about vets. So I want to bring you back on. Maybe we can talk about that another time. Maybe we can dive into 
you know so much about the research, and I know you've spent a lot of time going to these conferences and, and, and listening to these um, doctors and researchers speak. And I think you have a lot of valuable information to share. And um, I think you approach it from a really um, sane perspective. And you're also a fun and cool person to talk to, Cam. So I, was in, I would love to have you back on the show and we can work out any of the technical difficulties. This is only my second one, so I'm still ironing out the bugs here a little bit, but- uh, That's right, well, these are the conversations that we've been having for years, and you and I met, and we do, we make very similar products. We do a lot of the same things, and I, I've never seen you as competition, and I, I don't think you've ever seen me that way, even though we are uh, you know, competing for the same shelf space. But that's one of the beautiful things about this. There's no way in the world we're gonna fill the void that is needed for cannabis products and medicine. And the more that we can support you, the more it's gonna improve the entire community. And we've had these conversations for years on how can we move forward as a community, not how am I gonna get my brand off the ground and how am I gonna get, how am I gonna get mine? And yeah. I don't see it, the people who are all about how do I get mine in this industry, they're finding themselves more and more isolated. And the people, I, I think it's taking us this long that all of us that had our brands and our farms, we were all running out there trying to get established and trying to get into this roaming industry. And now we're seeing that, I, I think it might almost be a benefit that they've tortured us so badly in the rollout of, of uh, California regulation that it's forcing all of us small family product makers and farmers to rally together and support each other and form community groups. We just founded the very first cannabis grain shawl in the United States here in Sebastopol. Uh, we've got the SCGA. We're all out there every day. We're writing letters to each other. We show up to community groups. And because we're seeing the bullshit they're putting us through, it's forcing us to wrap our arms around each other. And a lot of the corporate interests coming in, they're just looking at the bottom line. They don't get it. They don't understand it. So that means they're not at the table. Yep. Yep. No, I think you're right. It is hardening us. You know, I mean, it's like, I've been watching the last dance. It's like the bulls playing the pistons for all those years, you know, and getting their ass kicked. Like we're all, we're, we're getting hardened. Those that are going to survive um, are going to come out the other side, you know, some, some uh, battle hardened vets for sure. And uh, with big empathetic hearts, man. <laughs> that's, that's right. So that's right. <laughs> and, but I, I think, you know, I just, just to kind of touch on this a little bit before I let you go, but I don't, you know, I, it's so important to me and I know it is to you guys too, to preserve the heritage of this industry that's existed on the West coast really for a long time and all over the country, every, every all there's sections of this country that, that really do have a cannabis heritage, including the Appalachia, including mm -hmm. New York, but I, I don't think anywhere really competes with California, especially Northern California. And people that don't know the quality of Sonoma, just to plug you guys a little bit, Sonoma grows some of the some fire and, and if you've never tried sun-grown sonoma flower anybody that's listening to this should go out and buy some captain stash or find a farm that's from sonoma and give it a try and then the next week try some humboldt sun-grown and you'll begin to actually understand the terroir and the subtle differences and nuances of soil of you know one farm's biodynamic another one's you know regenerative another one's this or that and you really start to dial in you know like hey I, I can really tell the difference now between Mendocino County weed and Humboldt County weed there's a real different flavor profile and there's a difference between mm -hmm. you know Willits and 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 Laytonville and you know and you know all the Appalachians and Sonoma and oh, yeah. that to me is so exciting and, and so the fun that are going to thrive in those areas right it's you know, it, we're, we're like where the wine industry was in the 70s right when people were trying yep. to grow uh cabernet in monterey county and it didn't work mm -hmm. 
Now Monterey County grows some of the best Pinot Noir in the world, but it took them 30 years to figure out what varietals of Pinot to grow in that region that worked well with the soil, with the climate. And the same is true for cannabis. When you're actually growing the plants in the ground, you know, not, not in a store-bought fox farm soil, but actually using the native soil, using mm -hmm. low impact farming methods that when after you leave, you've left the environment better. Yes. That, that's what's different about people like us and the commercial minded people, because we're actually doing things that are more expensive, more labor. The reward is not short term, but we know it's the right thing to do. And so we're investing in ourselves and our community and in our environment. And I think that wins. I think at the end of the day, as long as we don't let this period right now shake us out, if we can stay strong together, I think at the end of the day, the customer, if you put a small family farm, organic certified, you know, uh, flour in one hand versus commercially grown flour in the other, and there's a story behind the one, I think not everyone, some people are going to want the jet fuel. That's great. But other people are going to want, Hey, I want to support that farm. I want to support that region. I really like the way the flavor is. I like that they're not using uh, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides and I can taste it. I can feel it in my throat. When people are, when people are using a bunch of fertilizers and they don't flush their hydro system well enough, it can really burn your throat. We don't have to worry about that stuff when you're growing naturally. You let the plant have a relationship with the soil, with the microbial life, with the insects, you facilitate that relationship and give it the best shot, but you're not dominating it. You know, there's, there's yeah. this, there's this, and this is again for another podcast, but the, the mentality behind indoor hydroponic growing is all about yield and it's all about money. And that's great. I don't shame that at all, but there is another market and there's another customer that wants to know that they're spending their money on people that are, doing it the right way that care about the birds the bees and the flowers and the trees and a little thing called love because it's all about that thing <laughs> well, that's when we when we walk into a dispensary and we're talking to them and we're talking to bud tenders and we're doing our product demos or our education classes one of the first things we say to them is you as the bud tender are going to decide how this market's going to go you, the bud tender, are going to tell the customers whether they should buy this corporate weed over here in the fancy packaging that's all jet fuel and high speed, or are you going to tell them, hey, this is a family-grown farm. This is sun-grown. This is It's up to the bud tenders, and now we got to take it to the consumers, because like we said, the consumer, you know, generally, they're uneducated. They don't know, you know, they just don't know what they don't know, and so I think the more we educate them, I think that market where people are going to care where their food and their cannabis come from, people are going to care about the farmer or that it's local. Those things are going to become more important than THC percentage. Right. And when somebody, when somebody buys a small farm or a small brand that you're right, that money stays in the community rather than going to somebody in Canada, you know, or on the East coast an investor. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important because, you know, then the money goes back into your local school districts, into the tax system. It goes to your neighbor down the street so that, you know, he can be a better dad, a better uh, person, a better member of their community. All this stuff really adds up. And I think, we, you know, in the world of Amazon and big box stores and global supply networks, we've totally lost touch with that. But I think COVID has been a serious reminder that we need to bring some of our supply chain back. It, we can grow our own food, we can make our own 
we need to make certain things in this country so that we're protected and independent from global pandemics, from, you know, God forbid, wars and things like that. And growing hemp, is, there's, like you said, during World War II, they, they brought it back because it's so um, productive because you can, it grows so fast and requires little water and fertilizer and can produce strong fiber well, and produce necessary. oil. It's necessary. I mean, it is, we, we, we need to go back to the old days when we actually are giving people money to grow hemp. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, you know how many millennials like me would love to get a grant to go out and start a hemp farm? I bet they would have just, a, they would have applicants like you wouldn't believe. People that want to get out of yeah. corporate life, people that want to get off of their computer, People are craving a return to nature. They want to get their hands in the soil. It's good for us. It's what we're supposed to be doing. And um, but you're right. It's up. It's up to us as a community to kind of educate and let people know that there is a difference. And hopefully, we've done a little bit of that today. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with me today, Cam. Um, Always, man. It's, I can't wait till we see each other again in person. Definitely, we'll have to. We'll have to smoke some of that Captain Stash and. Uh, they swing the golf clubs around a little bit like cavemen and <laughs> getting better. I think, I think when I played with you is like the third time I ever played golf. Yeah. Well, I, I think I've only played one since then and I still suck. So I got to get out there with Eli and Jody again. <laughs> Meeting Jody at five. All right. Nice. Well, <laughs> tell them what's up for me. Send them my love and to Shannon too. And uh, let's do this again. I'd love to have you back on. Absolutely. man. I love doing it. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye. Cheers. Thank you for joining me on head change the podcast that puts you in a better headspace. I've been your host, Levi Strom. Be sure and join us next time for another episode. And until then, peace.